This is the wrap-up message. On a hill too far away, 15 Protestant truths about the death of God the Son. This is part 14. And uh, I can be brought down, as I say, in every service. I'm plenty loud. The title, this is a Horbin title, isn't it? Jesus died on the cross to deliver us from coming judgment, secure our presence with him immediately upon death, and guarantee the resurrection of our bodies from the grave. That's not the sermon, that's just the title. The middle part is where I want to spend a little bit of time tonight. Secure our presence with him immediately upon upon death. What happens to Christians 10 minutes after they die? Is it pearly gates? The final state? What happens 10 minutes after a Christian dies? And I don't think that gets talked about a whole lot. I am surprised... I am surprised at the number of Christian funerals I attend where you would get the impression from, from speaker after speaker after speaker that, that the best we hope for is that, well, so-and-so's dead, they were a good Christian, and now they're with Jesus, and end of story. And that's not the end of story. Nowhere near the end of the story in the New Testament. It's not even close to the end of the story. So I want to talk a little bit about all those things. Here are four texts. They're just brief texts. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10. You have this in your notes? Let's read it out loud, okay? Just this one together. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Okay, I'll read. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Isn't For if we have been united with him in a death like his. There's a reason God the Son, before the incarnation, did not have a physical body like this. We we can't think of Jesus apart from that name given by the angels. You should call his name Jesus. We can't consider the second person of the Trinity except in a physical body because that's... That's the only way we encounter him in the New Testament. But we know from John chapter 1 and other passages of Scripture that Jesus, God the Son, did not always have a physical body. Why did he, why did he take on a physical body? Why couldn't God just say, you know what, I forgive all of you people? And the reason he has to take on a physical body is it's in the first sentence of Romans 6.5. If we have been united with him... In a death like his. He had to come and die. He had to die physically. A physical death. Which of course before the incarnation was impossible for him. He had to die a physical death. So that that we would be co-participants in death with Jesus. Well who cares Don? Why? So that we would be co-participants with him. In a physical bodily resurrection. Like his. That's what the verse says right? It's a great text, that short Romans 6, 5. Hebrews 9, 27, 28. For just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who, eagerly, who are eagerly waiting for him. So not to deal with sin. That's a wonderful thought that when Jesus comes... 
You don't have to run and hide under the trees. He's not coming to deal with sin. That's been dealt with on the cross. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the New Testament says three things about our accomplished redemption through the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross secures our presence with Christ immediately upon our death. The cross of Christ secures the resurrection of our bodies from the grave when Jesus comes again. And the body of Jesus on the cross fully bears God's judgment on all my sin. So because of these three accomplishments of Christ's passion, uh, everything about the accomplishments of the cross matter eternally. They matter forever. And it's so significant to me that all of these things are related to the cross. In other words, our deliverance from wrath, the securing of our presence with Jesus upon our death, the resurrection of our physical bodies, though those events are all in the future, the scriptures constantly link them up to something that has already happened. That's designed to give us hope. So this isn't something like a business venture God's planning and he's hoping it's going to work out well. These are past accomplishments, though they are yet still future events in our experience. They have happened. And I'm seeing Brent and Christy and I'm thinking, how many Sundays do you guys have here before you go? Oh, Okay. Guess I missed that one, eh? Point number one. Jesus died on the cross to secure our presence with him immediately upon our death. Ten minutes after you die. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Okay, we, we get all of that so that... Whether we are awake, what's that mean? Awake means like this, right? I mean, I know you're not all awake, but physically alive. Or asleep. What's asleep? Well, that's, that's dead. That's, that's the appearance from the outside. The body in the grave, asleep. So that whether we are awake, like we are, Asleep, body in the grave, Michael Horbin, my dad. Paul uses the same language in 1 Thessalonians 4. Even though they're with the Lord, he talks about them being asleep. Those that are asleep when Jesus comes. He means their bodies in the grave. That's what he's talking about. Whether we are awake or asleep, so alive physically now, or buried in the cemetery, we might live with. In other words, one of the key purposes of Christ's death on the cross was to cause us to know him and to be with him, whether we are awake, uh, breathing, or whether our bodies are in the grave, sleeping, six feet underground. 
our, our relationship with Jesus isn't changed by the fact of our physical death. The fact that my body lies in the grave, asleep, doesn't change Christ's love for me, nor, apparently, my love for him. Think about that just for a minute. It doesn't change my love for him. How can that be? Body in the grave, buried, coffin, in the ground. How can my love for him be ongoing? And how do you know this, Pastor Don? How do you know we don't just go into some kind of soul sleep? And so it just seems like a moment. You know, it's like when you go to bed and you fall asleep. It doesn't seem like seven hours or eight hours when the alarm goes. It seems like it's just like that, right? So how do you know we just don't go into some unconscious state and then at the second coming, it just feels like we just died because you've been in that kind of unconscious state. How do you, how do you know there's something living and conscious in our relationship with Jesus? I mean, immediately upon our death, how do you know that? And I, and I need to back up at this point. I said earlier that redemption through the work of Christ guarantees that our relationship with Jesus isn't changed by the event of our physical death. That isn't quite true. It's, it's not untrue in the sense that it's a lie, but it's untrue in the sense that it doesn't do justice, doesn't really do justice quite to what Paul wants to say. Actually, your relationship with Jesus is changed immediately upon the moment of your death. But you'll only understand that when you look at some wonderful texts really carefully, because this isn't talked about explicitly or extensively in the New Testament. There's much more said about when Jesus comes again, because when Jesus comes again and our bodies are raised, that is the blessed hope of the church. My dying, if I die tonight and I go to be with Jesus, that's gloriously true. That's not the blessed hope of the church. The blessed hope of the church is Jesus coming, the new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, bodies raised. That's what we're all looking forward to. So the Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about in between my physical death and the return of Jesus. But what it does say is pretty special. Remember, what I'm saying here is that the relationship I have with Jesus, his love for me, my love for him, that isn't undone by physical death. It is changed, though. It is slightly different, and it's different in a good sense. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 4. Is that in your notes? Okay. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he's talking about this, this, this body. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Just talk to people about life. And while we live in these bodies, week by week by week, month by month by month, we're, we're a burdened people. There's trials. There's difficulties. We groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but 
that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Okay? Basically, this is Paul's description of life in these earthly bodies. They wear out, and twice Paul describes this time right now as a time of groaning. We all know we're going to die. We all know we're aging. There are many wonderful blessings. There are many good things that God brings into our lives. Many wonderful evidences of his grace while we're here on earth. But we, we long. Even people who don't know what they're longing for. Even people who couldn't articulate it. Even people who don't acknowledge God in any way. We long for our eternal state. Clothed with resurrection bodies. In a new creation unmarred by the way it has become all gummed up by sin and corruption and disease and decay and the effects of the fall. In truth, in truth, everybody, this is all we have ever longed for. Some people know it, some people don't. It's all we've ever longed for. God's new creation. So that's the first thing to remember. If you want to see the change that death makes to the believer, life in these earthly bodies right now is this time of groaning. But then there's something else that Paul says. Philippians 1, 21, 22, 23, and 24. The famous verse, of course, is, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is, that is far better. Depart, be with Christ, far better. 24, but to remain in the flesh. Okay, so that speaks of the body, right? an enfleshed existence, a fleshly existence, a material existence. That's what you and I have right now. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. This passage is more unique than Christians frequently realize because it may well be the only place, others hint at it, I guess, but the only place that kind of clearly tells us something about the time span between my funeral... And the second coming of Jesus. The comparison Paul is making is between, clearly, living on earth in the flesh. Do you see that? Verse 24. And departing. We know he's not talking about catching a flight. He means departing, dying, and being with Christ. Living in the flesh, being with Christ. Being with Christ upon the moment of his death. In no place... In this passage is Paul discussing the ultimate joy of life in the resurrection body, the final state after Jesus comes again. Paul does not mention it. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about not Jesus coming. He's talking about his leaving, his departing. But, says Paul, death still brings a change, and it brings an immediate change even that temporary condition of being um, absent from the body, 
Paul says, even that condition, before the resurrection body, absent from a body, he still says it's great gain over life in the flesh. Verse 24. It's great gain over life in this world as we presently know it, which the Corinthian text says is is a time of groaning. It's a time of difficulty. There's suffering. So when Paul says it's gain, he's not talking about some vague, unconscious, mystical soul sleep. This, his departure, before his resurrection body, he says will be a time of heightened enjoyment and awareness of Jesus. In other words, whatever is best of your life right now, it will be better when you die and your spirit goes to be with Christ. If it isn't better, it isn't gain. And Paul says it is gain. It's gain right away. We're not told everything about it, but we are told two things. What we know for sure, and this is all we know for sure, although Christians like to pretend they know more. What we know is, if I die tonight, I am with Christ, absent from the body, present where? And it's gain. And you know what? Until I die, I'm happy knowing just those two things. It will be with Christ, and it will be better. It will not be finished. It will get better yet. But it will be gain over existence the way we know it now. All right. Point number two. Jesus died on the cross to secure our resurrection from the graves in which we were buried. This is different. We're not now talking about our departure, our death. We're talking about our resurrection from the grave. Like, are there better words on a summer Sunday to read than these? Revelation 1, the last part of 17 and 18. I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. This is what we worry about, you see. This is what we worry about. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. Isn't that interesting? I'm the living one. I died. I did die. And behold, I am alive forevermore. That's great, Pastor John, but that's Jesus. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, that's been dramatized in so many ways, I know. Jesus specifically talks about these keys, but I don't picture them as a literal set of Metallic, metallic keys. They, they carry the idea of authority and accomplishment. And they explain a very profound truth. Jesus did raise several people from the dead. Do you remember? During his earthly ministry? There's lots. Well, not lots. There are several. The most commonly known would be the grave of Lazarus. I've often been a little bit envious of Lazarus, a little bit envious. You you think about it, because when he actually came to finally die at whatever age it was, it must have been a much easier experience for him, don't you think? Here's one guy that got to go through it once, come back, 
and then die later on. And I, I'm sure he must have had a great time talking to the rest of the family saying, you see, this is not a big deal. You people don't know this. I've done this before. And you never slip out of the care of Jesus and his authority. But all the people Jesus raised, let me say it as reverently as I can, but I want to word it this way because it has a little bit more impact. It might surprise you that even Jesus in all his divine majesty couldn't bestow eternal life in the sense of not physically dying couldn't bestow that kind of eternal life until after he conquered death himself through his own death on the cross. He tasted death for everyone, the Bible says. He couldn't just dispense with it like Santa giving out presents. It's after he died, after he conquered death, rose from the grave, that the Bible talks about these keys... This is the idea that Paul picks up on in our opening Romans text. Romans 6, 5. For we have been, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And if Jesus didn't have the keys of death, then his death and his resurrection would only be his death and resurrection. They would just be his experience. But because he now holds the keys of death and Hades, he's talking now about providing access, making provision. Jesus takes us with him all the way through death to resurrection and eternal life. The New Testament rings with this. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. 14, 15, 16. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if that's true, since we believe that, even so, through Jesus, this is the key idea, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That is, those, those who have died, their bodies in the grave. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord... Paul says, I'm not making this up. I got this from Jesus. We don't have these words specifically quoted from Jesus. Paul says he heard them from Jesus. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. And then these words that are just, they're just too big for us. This is going to happen. This is going to be a bigger event than Brexit ever has been. For the Lord himself, Jesus, the one that was crucified, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. He's coming down with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's their bodies. I heard a pastor tell me, he was sure that that meant his church was going to be first in, in, uh, in order. The dead in Christ will rise first. Or 1 Corinthians 6.14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. It's not talking about our spirits there. It's talking about our bodies. This isn't, you know, it's just forget it for a minute. But there's... we. 
we hear those words, we think about it, and there's something in us that says, I know the Bible's true, I believe it, I know that, that this is going to happen, but I can't get my head around this. I can't get my head around the idea that, that like, what's left of somebody? What's left of somebody who, who died in uh, 800 B.C.? And the only answer is, well, there's nothing left. What's left of someone that was eaten by a shark? Well, nothing is left. So, so I, I don't understand, like, what's God going to do? Collect all sorts of little molecules? Put pieces back together? No, this isn't some zombie-like thing. That's not what's happening. Let me ask you this. How hard a time do you have imagining God taking the dust of the ground, forming it, we're not told how, breathing life into it, and getting Adam, and then taking a rib and getting Eve? How does that one bend your brain a little bit? Which is why, which is why, what we have through the accomplishment of Christ, it's called this, and it's, it's the accurate name. There is a new creation coming. It's not reassembly. Okay? Everybody understand? It's not reassembly. It's, it's a new creation. He is going to do again what he did in Genesis 1 and 2... Only he's going to do it for the spirits of those who love Jesus and come back. The body will be recreated. Like that's, a, that's a pretty big story, I think. It's a pretty big story. Oh, man, look at that clock. No, don't. It's, it's five after six. Point number three. Here's the third thing. Jesus died on the cross to deliver us from the final judgment to come. If you don't take sin really, really seriously, you will never be as happy as our Lord wants you to be thinking of his cross. People who make light of sin are never happy Christians. You marvel at grace. You see something amazing in it when you see the wretchedness of sin, when you see how bound we are in sin, when you see how hopeless we are at escaping it, and when you see how there's nothing a holy God can do with sin but judge it. Then you love the cross. Then you love the cross. The Bible says judgment is real and it's coming. I'm not going to read all the verses I've put in your notes. Um, let me just jump to 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. You have to jump in the middle of a sentence and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. That's when he comes back. That's what he's talking about. The second coming. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Listen to these words. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Obeying the gospel. It's what I talked about this morning. What real faith is. It's not just 
a commitment to accurate doctrine. It's a commitment to the consequences of that belief in Christ. But the point here is inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So apart from redemption, God has nothing good to offer sinners. There's no hope for anything but judgment. Judgment is stern, but it's not unjust. So apart from redemption through the death of Christ, these texts describe a judgment that is unescapable, absolutely certain. And and until our stomachs churn in dread over the just prospect of such awesome future judgment, our hearts will never sing over the deliverance still to come through the cross of Christ. So don't soft pedal the wrath of God silence the message of the New Testament, leave those verses out of your study and think somehow you're going to magnify God's grace. It's just distorted in the worst sense. This, this attempt at a, at a divine makeover that tries to re-image the love of God into something that's just sappy and tolerant, like the kind of love we have in our world. It's idolatrous. Why did Jesus come to die? To forgive our sins, yes. But not not the way you forgive a child for spilling grape juice on the carpet. Uh, Divine forgiveness isn't just politeness. it's, It's a deliverance supplied through the cross from future wrath and judgment by a Christ who shed his blood. Hebrews 9, this is what we read at the beginning, 27, 28. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. You haven't seen him since. No one's seen him since. Even the people who who were alive then, Jesus died on the cross, then he ascended. After his resurrection, no one's seen him, but he will, he's going to appear. He will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. That, that phrase, the arresting phrase, who will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This world is not going to be delivered from sin. It's not going to be delivered from wrath. Except, except through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has everything to do with uh, our missions commitment. It has everything to do with, you know, why we, why we work hard. We have lots of services. We get into God's word. We pray together. Why? Well, we're, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. We celebrate that we've been delivered from wrath that is to come. So, because of his death on the cross, Jesus secures our presence with him immediately upon death. Immediately upon death. 
Because of Christ's death on the cross, we are guaranteed the resurrection of the body. The recreation and resurrection of the body. We use the word resurrection because Paul uses it. It's a recreation, resurrection. It's recreation in that God makes it all over again from nothing. But it's resurrection because it will be Don Horban's body. It will be your body, remade, a glorious body. And because of his death on the cross, we have been delivered from wrath that is to come. So altogether, we looked at about 17 accomplishments of the cross of Christ. Review them. Review them. When you come into God's house, don't have light, trivial thoughts about the cross. It is, it is big enough to hold the whole church together until Jesus comes again. Let's pray.